This episode is brought to you by DNA Fit, providers of state-of-the-art genetic testing. Their services build a roadmap for your individualized health, fitness, and lifestyle goals by testing the genetic markers that make you unique. As a podcast listener, you get 30% off by going to dnafit.com and using the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout. Also brought to you by Primal Mayo. Made with pure avocado oil, organic cage-free eggs, rosemary extract, vinegar derived from non-GMO beets, and a dash of salt, you can turn any traditional dish into a superfood with just one serving. Healthy mayo, who knew? Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at PrimalBlueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Welcome, listeners, to the podcast. This is host Brad Kearns. We have a very interesting guest by the name of Christopher Smith from Portland, Oregon. How you doing, Christopher? I'm doing great, Brad. Thanks for, uh, thanks for calling. Um, for those of you who aren't rabid speed golf fans, Christopher is a true legend of this amazing, maybe a little bit fringe sport, not the most popular, but you're the world record holder, man, former world champion. And um, if anyone needs proof, one of the most astonishing YouTube videos you'll ever see if you search for Christopher Smith Speed Golf Band and Dunes, um, it's this really cool high-speed production where they filmed the entire round. It's only about a four-minute video, and you shot four under par in 53 minutes at this championship course of Bandon Dunes. Yeah, for those of you that uh, find golf on TV exceedingly boring like I do, uh, <laughs> this is a, a, a three-minute uh, video. Really, it takes a little over three minutes, and it shows me playing all 18 holes at Bandon Dunes Golf Resort on the original course. Um, and even in between the, uh, the greens and the tees. So it gives people a taste of kind of what is, what is speed golf. So, yeah. And it's, it's fun for us who play and love it, but I think it has so many life lessons to offer and also lessons about peak performance that translate into all kinds of other competitive goals and even life goals, workplace goals. So I want to get into that a little bit. Um, we can do our little speed golf plug, but um, the difference between playing regular golf, or what do you call it, slow golf? <laughs> yeah, I think that's really what it's become, Brad. And, and for the listeners out there, Brad Kearns is a long time, I won't call you a closet speed golfer, but you've been involved with the sport of speed golf maybe even longer than I have. And so dabbled in it and uh, like with most everything else, you do a, a, a great player there as well. Yeah, so you have this sport that's that's slow and boring for most people, and even the people who play, you know, it's it, it's such a a challenge to overcome the tension and the over analytical mindset and just hit the dang ball that's sitting there still. And in contrast, when you play speed golf, you're running pretty much as fast as you can over the course because they're counting your minutes count for a point and each stroke counts for a point and then you add it together. So you're not wasting any time and all of a sudden you're going from this 
paralysis by analysis mindset into a reactive mindset. And just tell us a little bit about how that affects the brain from a performance standpoint and what great lessons or what great insights you can get from just turning them, turning them loose and running the golf course. Yeah, well, you gave it a good, a good start there, Brad. Really what happens when you play in that fashion when you're um, you know, running or jogging or even walking quickly in between shots and then uh, immediately hitting the next one is you just, it, it's really quite liberating for most people that try it, let's say for the first time, it, it allows you to use your, your intuition and uh, not deliberate and think about it so much. And really what it does is it turns golf into uh, a reactionary sport, like most of the other things that we do uh, in, even in life, even when you're driving a car around. And so, um, it becomes a little more instinctive. Uh, people are drawn to it uh, for, you know, not only the athleticism, it's nice to be able to, you know, run nine or 18 holes and actually get your golf and your, and your workout in. But a lot of the other things that, um, that it, uh, it produces, and it, it helps people also it certainly help me with my traditional slash slow golf, just taking some of the, the pieces and some of the things that, that happen kind of automatically in speed golf and transferring them to, traditional golf um and you've made pretty much of a a business of science out of this this fun thing because you're a a golf teacher and you've developed this train to trust program and that's train the number two trust.com you can learn all about it but it's quite innovative and you're teaching all kinds of golfers not just speed golfers with some of these interesting principles you want to talk about some of the key points there yeah sure i'd love to train to trust came about from uh, really kind of a blending of 20 years of my own speed golf endeavors. And of course, when I first started playing speed golf, Brad, and, and to the listeners, the first couple of times I played, I was I was just shocked at how well I played and how good my score was. And I, I just didn't understand it because it was, it was against all the things I believed in, you know, as far as having a, you know, a set pre-shot routine and then, and then making, you know, rehearsal or practice swings and having exact yardage and, and taking a lot of time to read the green from all over the place. Um, and in speed golf, you do none of that. And so like with most things uh, that I encounter in life that I don't understand, and there's a lot of those, I, I went to people that were experts in those areas. So neuroscientists and motor learning uh, specialists, and then experts in human performance. And I you know, reached out to them and I said, hey, I do this funny thing called speed golf. And why does it work better? <laughs> and it turned out that there was a lot of reasons that it, uh, for the mind body system, that it did work better. And so I've taken all that I've gleaned from those people, as well as my own speed golf endeavors. And I created a program called train to trust. And, and what train to trust is really is it's a different way of training and practicing that's, uh, much more effective when it comes to then taking what you've, what you've learned and what you've done, uh, onto the golf course, uh, golfers are, are notoriously bad for what I call wasting their time when they, when they practice, uh, doing things that really don't transfer that aren't going to help them when they're, uh, kind of under, under the gun and uh, having to perform under pressure. Uh, and that then frustrates them. So, um, you know, just one piece we've talked about this before, but for the listeners is something called context specificity, which is quite a mouthful. Uh, if you've had a, couple of beers and say it quickly three times. But what that means is how much does your practice and people can relate this to something in the workplace or other sports or other activities, but how much does your practice 
really look like you uh, performing when it matters, when there is consequence. And uh, all the studies and all the research and, and all my experience um, show that the more it looks like us doing the actual thing, uh, the more it will transfer when it matters. So that might even be, you know, giving a speech or a presentation or something even in the, you know, e even in the workplace. And um, unfortunately, a lot of it spend time, whether it's practicing golf or other things, where we're doing things that, you know, we think are going to help performance, uh, but they really don't because they don't look, taste, and feel like what's actually going to happen. Well, this is, uh, I think, a huge and juicy insight for anyone and context specificity. So you're talking about a speech or uh, something in the workplace or um, any, any type of encounter or communication skill necessary. Um, you have to simulate what you're trying to do in the competitive situation in any way possible for it to actually translate well. Exactly. And, um, you know, in a golfing example, we see people that go and practice their golf and they think they're getting better. And so they'll hit, <laughs> for example, 27 irons in a row off of an artificial surface, which is a perfect lie to the same target. And then I've played golf for over 40 years and that's never happened and it never <laughs> will. So it's not very context specific. You've never hit um, your drive onto a piece of artificial turf out there on the course somewhere? <laughs> Not yet, I'm sure. Although I'm sure that's going to exist at some point in time very soon. So it's this idea, and really, what's what's fascinating to me, Brad, and to the listeners is we we've actually been educated into an inefficient and an ineffective way to train and practice. So, for example, if you took a if you took a five year old kid out to a driving range and you put you know 20 balls down on a perfect lie and told them to hit them to the same target, they'd look at you like you were nuts. Because that's incredibly boring for a kid, and we tend to forget that kids are—they're really the, the the Tiger Woods and the Rory McIlroys and the Jordan Spieths and the Lydia Coes of learning. They are kids are expert learners, so they actually want something that's not only context specific, but they want something that's random and it's different and it's somewhat fun, um, and that's. You know, ironically, what happens when you go to play a, a round of golf is it's incredibly chaotic and random and full of variety, yet we flip it around and, and, and turn it into kind of this rote, boring, robotic uh, procedure. So it doesn't really help at the end of the day, and that then frustrates people. So they're, they're spending their, their precious time in this day and age and not seeing any results. Uh, interesting. I, I, I remind me of the example of uh, practicing a speech, which I, I could always just hate doing. And I'd, I'd, I'd try to do what the expert said and get some note cards and stand in front of a mirror and start talking to myself. And I'd get so bored after two minutes, I just literally could not practice my speech. And realizing that when you get in front of a live audience, that practice in front of a mirror has very little application. And you have some good points in your book and also the book that you led me to, um, Dr. Guagnoli's book, that even different parts of the brain are activated when you're practicing putts on the putting green or talking to yourself in front of a mirror versus when you're actually on that peak performance stage and you get the stress hormones flowing. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Mark Guadagnoli is one of my, is a friend and oh, was close. one of my mentors huh? and he's a, I'm sorry. I was close. You were close. Yeah. It sounds like, <laughs> you know, it sounds like something you'd order at, a, at an Italian restaurant, which of course is, uh, 
Dr. Mark is very proud of, and he's a neuroscientist among other, in, uh, uh, among other things at the University of Las Vegas. And like I said, he's a friend and a mentor. And his book is is entitled "Practice to Learn, Play to Win," and it's required reading for all of my golf students. But it's really a great book for anybody. Um, so one thing you draw a distinction about is the common practice of doing things repetitively has minimal uh, transferability to competition. So that might include um, anything that we, 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 we're, we're, we're so proud that we're putting in the hours, putting in the time, sinking 20 putts in a row on the practice screen before we go home. Um, but when do we ever do that in competition? And the brain doesn't, uh, doesn't translate well in a, a neuromotor uh, context. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, other than, than context specificity, we see things uh, called uh, interleaving and spacing, uh, which really speak to uh, doing things uh, in, in blocks and then taking a little break. So we've seen uh, through studying experts and other endeavors that really working intensely with a high quality uh, for 15 to 20 minutes, for example, and then taking about a five-minute break to allow the brain, that's the thing that is doing the learning uh, as opposed to the body. We've, we've kind of believed this myth of muscle memory for years, but at the end of the day, it's your central nervous system and your brain that's doing the learning. And it actually needs time to process and digest and assimilate what it is that's being learned. So uh, I have my golf students, and I think people would find, even if they're they're trying to get something done at work or preparing for something that if you if you worked really intensely for 15 or 20 minutes and then took, let's say, a five-minute break, uh, the amount of learning, the amount of rem- the remembering, and really the amount of work that you get done would be much greater. Uh, as opposed to uh, what we do, for example, or what we used to do to cram for a test where we just study, 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 which would be like hitting, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of golf balls, thinking that this is you know, this repetition is making us better. Uh, and then it really doesn't. So if we can all recall that, you know, in cramming for a test, we may have passed the test, but a week later, all that information, it was gone. It was long gone. So it's really not, it's not the sort of learning that lasts. And I know that's what golfers want. And that's what most of us want when we're spending time with something. Yeah, I also see that comparison to the modern workplace where there's so many distractions and short-term interruptions, um, the chat window that's left open all day long, and you, you walk in the door at the start of the day and you have these three major objectives to accomplish, whether it's to finish the proposal or prepare for the meeting or uh, write you know, some important uh, document, um, and you, everything gets frittered away because of that lack of lack of focus and, um, you know, too many distractions. So it feels like in, in many sports, especially golf, you can implement these peak performance qualities and practices and experience a really nice carryover to make, make yourself a better performer in other areas. Or alternatively, I guess, you can go out there and flail around and eat a bunch of chips and smoke cigars <laughs> and, you know, have that be 
somehow a reflection of maybe where you're falling short in other areas of life because you don't care enough or you tell yourself a story like, I want to be a better player, but you don't really uh, make the commitments necessary in terms of uh, you know, the context specificity in practice or being sharply focused and totally engaged and then taking breaks uh, in between those periods of sharp focus. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, Brad, that, that this whole quality piece, you know, the quality piece is much more important than the quantity. Uh, I certainly will not deny that, that quantity is important uh, as far as, uh, you know, having that to, to really get good at something. But we tend to forget the quality piece. And I see this with golfers. I see this in the workplace, like you just mentioned, where if you really need to, you know, get something done, you need to shut off everything else. That means, heaven forbid, shut off your, uh, your phone and, focus on the task at hand uh, on the lesson tee, for example, I, I want to make sure that people are, are highly focused on what they're doing. Uh, I tell people that golf's a really social sport, but social hour and happy hour is for another time. So if it's their time and their, their precious time in this day and age to practice their golf or do whatever, then they need to put the proverbial do not disturb sign up on their forehead somewhere on their back have people stay away from them and uh, we see this in in uh, in golf context when folks will actually wear headphones as if they're listening to music even though they're not listening to music <laughs> because that tends to keep people away from them so that they can get good quality practice in and um, what's happening in the in the workplace and others is our brains which are frankly the people don't like to hear this, but they're kind of naturally ADHD. They like to just float around and they will float towards or gravitate towards whatever is the most current piece of information. So as you mentioned a moment ago, if, if someone has a report or a piece of work that they have to get done, if something happens to pop up somewhere else on another screen or on their phone, they'll actually go to that even though it's not the most important thing. Um, and then maybe get back to the other one and do it really not with a, um, with a super high quality. So uh, expert performers manage to combine super high quality with a lot of quantity. Um, and that's, that's one of the tricks or the secrets to getting really good at you know anything for that matter. Yeah, I guess it's very important to notice when your quality drops off. And I've been making an effort myself to realize you know, sometimes you're in the midst of a practice for sports or writing something on your computer and you realize you're zoning out and, mm -hmm. you know, to catch yourself and, and, and recalibrate and say, oh, maybe, maybe it's time for a break. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it makes me think of a, uh, a story or a conversation I had with uh, a couple of years ago with Dr. K. Anders Erickson. And, and Anders is the founding father of the 10th thousand hour hypothesis that was brought to everybody's attention in Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers. But I was speaking with him with a student of mine who was at the time challenging the 10,000 hour hypothesis. And we, we, we asked him a really simple question. What happens if I start losing focus and concentration and the quality of my practice goes down? And Anders says, very easy. You must immediately stop. Hmm. Stop whatever you're doing and go and take a break because you are wasting your time. If you're not cognitively engaged, that's another you know big phrase to say, hey, really thinking about, aware of, focusing on, concentrating on what you're doing, you're wasting your time. 
And I think we see this in the workplace. We see this in the office. We see it on the golf course. People think, oh, I'll just hit a few more golf balls. I'll just write a few more paragraphs. But the quality's gone. You started to think about other things. What am I going to do tonight? What am I going to have for dinner? Uh, and if that's the case, folks, trust me, you're better off just taking a break, walking away from it, and then coming back to it. Well, I guess if you if you carried on, it's possible that you could ingrain unhealthy or uh, poor uh, practice and, and performance habits, huh? Yeah, I would think so as well with even from the physical side. Uh, we know that when we get fatigued physically, we begin to compensate. The, the human is a master compensator. Um, I certainly see this a lot in golf swings, but we see it uh, in all facets of life. And uh, that that emotional and mental fatigue can do the same thing. They'll start to compensate. And then once again, the quality isn't great. So um, as one of our uh, heroes, Brad, once said, and it's a quote that I use a lot in, in presentations and seminars that I give, the late, great Steve Prefontaine told us all that, you know, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. So if you can't give your best, then take a break, go do something else and come back to it. Oh, that's great. I have a poster with that quote on there from Prefontaine. Yeah, and, and everybody's got their gift. I mean, he's you might not be able to relate to a world-class runner, but if you're in the workplace and you're frittering away your time and attention, that's definitely sacrificing the gift that you have to give to yourself and to your community and your who, who you're working for. Hey, it's Brad Kearns to talk about our partner on the podcast, dnafit.com. Cutting-edge genetic testing to identify your particular diet and exercise attributes and optimal lifestyle behaviors to align with your genetic expectations. It's great stuff. Try it out. Very simple process. You send a swab sample through the mail and receive by email a detailed written printout and graphic representation of all your genetic particulars that will help you inform the ideal diet and exercise practices that align with optimal gene expression. Take advantage of their 30% discount on their comprehensive package just for listening to the podcast. Enter the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at dnafit.com. Let me ask you about this term you use, desired difficulties. Yeah, it's a catchy little term, isn't it? And I, I borrowed it from someone, like most everything else. But desired difficulties really refers to, you know, when we're trying to learn something, Brad, and, and to the listeners, there ought to be some failure. There ought to be some setbacks or uh, what we call desired difficulties. Uh, that's a big part of getting better uh, at anything and, and learning anything. Uh, if it's easy, uh, then really the part of us likes that because the human really won't exert energy unless we absolutely have to. But in order to learn something, that's the sort of energy that needs to be exerted. So uh, simply put, um, when you're trying to get better at something, we always need to seek something that's slightly harder than what we're already good at. Um, we tend to kind of like to stay in our comfort zones. And we just keep doing what we're good at. That makes us feel good. It reinforces this, this good feeling. But really, it doesn't push us to get any better or learn or improve or improve performance for that matter. So what we need to do is take it up just a little notch and get out of our uh, comfort zone and get into what we call the learning zone. And initially, when you get into that new zone, 
you will fail or you will fall. It's very similar to when a child learns how to stand or walk. Initially, what do they do? Well, they fall. And we don't call that failure. Really what it is is phenomenal feedback to the mind-body system. And the child, of course, doesn't, at that age, doesn't understand language. But for their systems, uh, it's created great feedback so that the next time they get up, try to stand or walk, uh, they've got that feedback and then they can learn to stand or walk. So these difficulties need to be presented. Um, I certainly present them in the train to trust boot camps that I do in the practice sessions. Um, people, you know, they, they, they think that might be a bad sign that they, that they fail initially. But at the end of the day, Brad, you can't learn anything without failing first. So it, it ought to be embraced. And, you know, unfortunately, even in our education system, we've tended to avoid failure. We've tried to keep kids from failing, yet uh, that's not what life offers. It's certainly not what a round of golf <laughs> offers. There's full, you know, it's full of desired difficulties. And if we looked at it as a positive thing, hey, I just fell. Hey, I just screwed up. Hey, I just misspelled something. Uh, it would really help our learning and our performance at the end of the day. Right. It, it reminds me of the podcast, the two podcasts I had with Ashley Merriman, the author of Top Dog. Uh, the science of winning and losing, and also nurture shock. And um, she made that point that, you know, if we don't fail, we're, we're going to be stagnating. And the problem is we're always afraid of failing because we're so attached to the outcome in modern life and mm. we're measured and judged by how we perform. And what did you shoot today on the golf course? So, you know, instead yeah. of experimenting with um, a new technique that you've been trying, like I remember uh, Jordan Spieth talking about the flop shot he hit on on 18, which was a magnificent shot. And he said, yeah, you know, two years ago, I wouldn't have hit that shot because I didn't have the confidence to uh, to pull it off. But I've now been battle tested in a lot of tournaments. And I said, what the heck, let's do it. Yeah, it's a great example. And I think people that are, that are already at the top of their game are always trying to get better. I think Tiger Woods has been criticized for this over the years. Why, why is he changing? Why does he change the swing? And really what, what he would and what he does answer to that is I'm just trying to get better um, and he can get criticized for that but um, wow. in, in most endeavors there is no there, there's always a next level and so I, I admire performers for for taking that chance and it is a chance you have to be uh, ready to take that that risk in order to improve and and frankly sometimes you get a little worse before you get better uh, and that's where the, the difficulties can come in um, and people shouldn't be afraid of that in their practice or their workplace to make mistakes. Uh, mistakes are a sign of, of learning. Now, if you continue to make the same mistake, well, then you need a, <laughs> maybe you need a little gut check. But, but I'm learning. It's a good sign. <laughs> That's interesting to uh, take that, that side on the Tiger issue because I've heard mostly um, the criticism of him endlessly futzing around uh, while he's number one in the world or – you know, trying to adopt too mechanical of an approach when he's such a amazing natural player, and I, I kind of um, I respect that side too. But you know, what what you brought up is really interesting because it could allude to the fact that you know you need that mental stimulation of a new challenge to stay focused and stay engaged when you're on top because it's maybe uh, when things are coming easily to you and you're winning twenty seven percent of the tournaments you enter or whatever Tiger mm. did at his best. Maybe it's easy to fall off unless you bring in a new challenge, such as 
a swing change or any of the things he's been criticized for. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind, like you said, about people's uh, talent and what they're good at and their passions um, is that's really Tiger's wiring. That's the way he's wired. So as many of the people that we've talked about and we know, Brad, some of these people, if you tell them, why don't you just stand pat, you're really good as it is, that alone will kill them. That will destroy (laughs) them. That will make them worse. So uh, people need to actually respect and understand and embrace their own, I call it their internal wiring and their, and their passions and their likes as not, wow, what's wrong with me? But this is who I am, and that's okay, and this is what I'm going to do. And I think uh, in that specific example uh, with Tiger Woods, that's his nature. And um, he's not one just to stand pat. He gets easily bored. I can share a story that I heard from uh, his longtime caddy, Steve Williams, that uh, Tiger really, when he, if you give him a very simple shot around the green, let's call it a chip shot or a pitch shot, that on a scale from one to 10 is, let's say, a three or a four. So it's not very hard. He's incredibly mediocre. In fact, what he'll do is he'll try to make it more complex. So if the shot calls for we're kind of diving into the golf specifics here. Well, all you need to do is take a pitching wedge and land it a couple steps onto the green and roll it to the hole. He'll take a 60 degree and open it up and try to hit it really high and land it next to the hole. Well, that's a lot more difficult, but that's the way uh, he's wired. Now, if you give him an incredibly difficult shot, now you've got his attention. Mm-hmm. See, and people, people are interested by whatever interests them. So we think back, 10 years ago in the Masters where he hit that unbelievable shot from behind the green uh, in the 05 Masters when he beat Chris DeMarco on the 16th hole where he hit it over the green, which is a bad place to hit it, by the way, if any of the listeners or you or I, Brad, get to play at Augusta National. And he hits a remarkable shot. And then just a couple of years ago at Jack's tournament, the Memorial, he had a really difficult shot, I believe, was behind or to the right of the 18th green. But that's what gets his interest kind of like seeing a, a cat all of a sudden sound asleep and then a bird flies into the vicinity that gets their interest. And so I would encourage people to a, you know, follow their interests and their passions, whatever that may be, and then respect those since uh, it's kind of the beauty of, uh, of life having such, uh, such variety. Right. So I wonder what's the trick to balancing that because um, a lot of our daily routines are going to be, wrote humdrum stuff that don't, you know, inspire that tremendous passion for maximum focus and engagement. Um, so how do you, how do you kind of give your best on that easy chip shot that, um, you know, we saw Tiger chunk a couple of those in, in uh, recent months and have all kinds of, uh, you know, attention and controversy about that? Yeah, well, if you think about it, you know, when you get in your car and drive to work every day, it might be the same route, but the conditions are never the same. There's different people on the road. The traffic lights are different. The foliage might be different. And so really just becoming aware of that. And I think that's an important part of uh, playing good golf. And then in a a lot of things, being aware of what's going on around you. Um, And then again, maybe adding a little bit of difficulty, a little bit of challenge into uh, whatever it is you're trying to get better at. Um, I borrowed a quote from from Dr. Guadagnoli's book, and I use it a lot in my train to trust practices, and that's taken from a, a very famous Russian general, General Suvorov, who never lost a battle, 
and he uh, always said that an easy practice made for easy training made for a difficult battle, and then a tough training made for an easy battle. So I think it would all it would help us all if if whenever we're practicing or working, if we made it a little bit more difficult, quite a bit more difficult. Then when it's time to perform, it's time to give the presentation, it's time to hit the golf shot or whatever it may be, uh, we're prepared for it better. I like that. You kind of spun it on its ear, man. So you, you know, go harder on the quote unquote easy rote routine stuff, and then your big challenges will um, uh, kind of fall into place. I think that's possibly true for communication too. When you're lazy in your communications, you don't use all your skills because it's just a routine conversation, but then it comes back to bite mm-hmm. you because you weren't paying close enough attention. Yeah, and then that goes back again to the to the attention piece. Well, where is our attention? Is it scattered all over the place or is it, is it focused on, on the task at hand, uh, whatever that may be? And I think that's incredibly important uh, in, in all aspects. The communication piece, certainly amongst younger people, is being lost because uh, of all the, you know, the texting and the emailing that's, that's going on. Dialogue and, and listening are becoming uh, lost uh, lost pieces yet at the end of the day it's incredibly important for us to kind of to get through life successfully yeah i don't know where we're going to go with that one but uh since we're since we were just talking about tiger and um have brought up a few of these top players over the conversation um i want to get some thoughts from you about uh you know the the ultimate peak performers and what they can do to to get even better and and lower the records in the future and also um about where the future of golf is going and the the positive direction it needs to go in to continue to grow and be interesting because we have a few challenges these days with speed and difficulty and so forth yeah that's one of my favorite topics these days brad as you know is just what is golf going to look like you know five years 10 years 20 years from now what think the the modern day player is seeing the importance of you know as much as they play and the wear and tear on the body that uh, it's it's important to take care of oneself Yet at the same time, as, as you know, with and, and like Mark talks about in a lot of the primal things, it's not rocket science. <laughs> so, for example, if, if, if the average human and the average tour player would simply be a little more careful about what they put into their bodies, how much sleep they get, uh, and train in, a, in, a, in an intelligent way, uh, that's really all it takes. Um, However, a lot of them need babysitters and people to tell them exactly what to do so that they're not uh, training physically in a suboptimal way or even a way that's not going to help them or, heaven forbid, get them hurt. And then eating a bunch of crap uh, and not sleeping. That's a great combination to get hurt, not perform in whatever you're doing in life, whether you're playing on the PGA Tour or in the workplace. And you can hire these experts and they are very helpful uh, or you can simply, you know, watch it yourself and do basically what, what, you know, cave person did caveman and cave woman did is, uh, is watch what, again, watch what you're putting in your body, you know, uh, get some good quality sleep and, uh, you know, and move in ways and train in ways that are, uh, that the body likes and are going to allow you to continue to, um, you know, to live a long life or in, in a PGA tour, you know, player's realm, what do I need to do to not get injured? So I can, you know, so I can continue to play and practice. 
Right. I would imagine the athletes in the individual sports like golf, and I know some track and field athletes that um, are absolutely on the cutting edge of anything they can do to enhance performance, improve overall uh, physical function and mobility and injury prevention. But then you see um, the athletes in the team sports that have these huge contracts and are part of this uh, system that maybe doesn't care about their long-term well-being, and their compliance seems to be lower in terms of just even staying out of trouble in daily life, even though they're purported to be you know, the highest-performing athletes in the world. There seems to be a distinction between someone like the golfer who is living and dying by their by their physical health and how well they're doing their back mm. rehab exercises and someone else who's picking up a check and maybe who knows where their where their heads at but they're you know they're on the gravy train and they don't care much about mm. their ultimate peak performance. Yeah, that's a good point. You wonder if you have a guaranteed contract, you know, how motivated are you to to perform? We see we do see this in other professional sports where you know, when, when the person is in the option year or the, you know, the contract's running out, all of a sudden they have a, a great season. And then once they sign the big fat contract and it drops off a little bit and, you know, golf, granted, there is, there is some guaranteed money there with the sponsorship there is now from, from the manufacturers. But at the end of the day, a lot of them are out there and if they're not making cuts, then it's, it's a, it's a loss for the week. So, um, they have to be a little bit more careful with, uh, with what they're doing in order to perform so they can make a living. Hey, Christopher, before we let you go, let's talk about the future of the great sport of golf. Well, I think wherever I go, and whether this was at Augusta National last week, talking to players, coaches, and even some of the members there, or, you know, down at the Muni here in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, there's, there's this concern seemed to be the same, and that is that this game has become incredibly uh, slow, uh, incredibly difficult, um, and it's no fun. So other than that, it's perfect. So it's gotten harder uh, <laughs> over the last 20 years? <laughs> well, I think it's, uh, it's – and everywhere I go as far as what are the challenges of people playing, uh, those, those things always seem to pop up. Yeah. And um, I think it's an incredibly difficult game to learn compared to other things. And the fact that the golf courses, you know, many of the golf courses in the last 20, 25 years have been built for the best players in the world, which is point zero 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 one percent of the people that play. So it makes it very difficult, even though the equipment and supposedly the instruction is better. And then you add to that, again, this, you know, this time piece where you have to play 18 holes of golf and that takes four to five hours. And then you have to drive and you have to warm up and then you have to have a beer afterwards and you might as well go skiing. It takes all day. <laughs> um, and then it's no fun. So, it, you know, if you put those three things together, uh, the question is, is why would anybody continue to do this with their free time? So um, I, I think uh, the sport will, and it's finally, we've got some of these, you know, alternatives. You know, I like to call it next golf. What's golf going to look like 5, 20, 50 years from now? And let me tell you something. It didn't look like this 200 years ago. Um, people tend to forget that, first of all, the original uh, course that the, uh, the Open Championship we call that the British Open in this country, but they call it the Open Championship, was played at Prestwick, and it was played on 13 holes. So why do we have to play 18 holes of golf? Why does it have to take you know, so long? You know, speed golf answers part of that, but as you and I know, speed golf isn't for everyone. Uh, there's people that can't or don't want to run. However, you know, some kind of alternatives where you can enjoy what is golf 
and it takes 60 or 90 minutes or two hours at the most, that's the kind of time people can actually, you know, turn their phone off for and, uh, you know, leave their family and then get back to doing other things throughout the day. And I think we see this now with, for example, you know, alternatives like speed golf, foot golf, top golf, which is a kind of a modern day driving range that has come about, uh, golf board, which is uh, a company that I, um, do some work with now, which is basically an electric skateboard that, uh, is built for the golf course and you put your clubs on it and it allows you to play speed golf without having to run. All these things are, are coming to the forefront in addition to, you know, training and practicing more effectively with, you know, programs like train to trust. But these are things that have to happen. Um, you know, a six hole golf course or back to the nine hole round. I think that's the direction that the sport needs to take. And at the same time, yes, will there always be the traditional, you know, four to five hour round on a championship golf course? Absolutely. People, we want that sometimes, but there's got to be other options. Well, that sounds like a really simple fix and um, just be, courses being amenable to a reduced rate to let somebody play for a short time and um, sounds easy. Well, I think it's, it's what's happening is people's hands are being forced. So these golf courses that, you know, are going bankrupt now, for example, because there's nobody there, a lot of golf courses are just starved for more players. Well, how do you get more players? Well, you got to make people again, make it more fun, you know, make it less difficult and make it faster and you can get people out on the golf course. So does that mean you're going to maybe you lease, um, a fleet of, uh, golf boards. Maybe you, uh, integrate a, you know, a nine hole round, uh, uh, you open the golf course up to foot golf, you change your golf course. So there's six hole loops. I think the future of golf will be, uh, individual golf courses, if you will, or even six hole golf courses where if you want, you can go out and just play six holes. So that would be, you know, an hour or so. If you want to play 12, fine. If you want to play 18, then you play it three times. But, but again, we live in this, this society where we're crunched for time and people don't have the, the five hours anymore uh, to go out and play. And then if they go out and play and shoot 140 and they lose, you know, two dozen golf balls <laughs> and it takes five and a half hours, they're really going to continue to do that? I don't think so. Christopher Smith, I love that solution. And thank you so much for spending this time with us, talking about all kinds of peak performance topics. Um, we can go to train and then the number two and then trust.com to learn about your unique approach and get some cool blog posts and everything. Absolutely. Yep. That's All right. the site. And uh, there's a weekly post there. And if you're in the Portland area, you're welcome to come to one of the train to trust practices, which is a uh, 90 minute session that, that uh, kind of replicates what a round of golf would be like. It's a lot of fun. Uh, as I say, it'll put a smile on your face and ice in your veins. So it'll uh, make you rethink <laughs> how you practice next time. All right. Thanks for joining us, Christopher Smith, world speed golf record holder and trained to trust professional teacher. And thank you, listeners, for another Primal Blueprint podcast. Have a great day. Hey, this is Mark Sisson from Mark's Daily Apple. At my blog, I talk a lot about healthy eating and why what tastes good should also be good for you. That's why I created Primal Kitchen Made. The first avocado oil-based mayonnaise that contains only the most nutrient-dense, all-natural ingredients. With avocado oil, organic cage-free eggs, vinegar derived from non-GMO beets, and a dash of salt, you can use Primal Kitchen Mayo with reckless abandon. 
While supplies last, if you go to primalblueprint.com and enter free book at checkout, you'll receive a free copy of my famous Healthy Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings cookbook, along with your purchase of any three-pack of Primal Kitchen Mayo. Healthy Mayo? Hey, who knew? Who knew? 